If I fall asleep during this sermon, somebody wake me up, would you? Nope. Okay, so I want to start with, uh, you can take your Bibles and go to James chapter 5 if you would, but I want to start by saying thanks to all of those of you who helped us move yesterday. Uh, I don't know how many people there were, but there was a bunch. And uh, so much so that we packed one house and had the other one unloaded in, let's see, 7.15 to 9.30, two hours and 15 minutes. That's not bad for a move, I'd say. Uh, and we're overwhelmed with the love y'all showed us yesterday, so thank you for doing that. Some of you I know offered to help and um, maybe didn't get the word or uh, whatever, but... Uh, if, that, if there's any failure there, it was on my part for not getting the word out, but I just want to say thank you for your willingness, et cetera. But we've, we're into our house, and uh, we will have an open house uh, sometime in the next month or so. We probably should unpack boxes before we have you over, but we'll let you know when it is. We want you to see where we're living and uh, know that uh, we're here, and uh, so thank you for all of you who helped with that. Um, also, I need to make this announcement. Um, <clears throat> she's going to kill me for doing this, but uh, our volunteer preschool worker coordinator is here, and uh, that's Marissa. She's sitting back in the pink blouse. Um, right? Right word? See, I, t- I called it a shirt in the first service, and I was corrected. But um, So she is uh, always looking for help, volunteer help in our preschool child care area, during the Sunday school hour specifically, uh, we use that time, uh, we have paid workers, but we supplement that with uh, volunteer workers, and we're trying to get enough that we have a rotation that you would only need to help uh, once every six or eight weeks, something like that. So if you would like to do that, and you can pass the background check, because uh, some of you can't, um, uh, we would love for you to help us with that if you would do that. So Marissa's the one you need to see, and if you can't find her, then you can always find me or get a hold of us through the church office, okay? Right? Thanks, Marissa. Appreciate that. And uh, so let me jump in now. Announcements all aside, let's get into where we are. We're going to be in James chapter 5, but as we go to that, I want to take you back into a previous century. Uh, The city of Chicago is famous or infamous for a lot of different things. Uh, But one of the things that most of us at least have some passing awareness of is the great Chicago fire of 1871. And it was that time of the year as October, uh, the fire occurred on October the 8th, going through a number of days uh, in the aftermath of all of that. But uh, Chicago in that area was suffering under an unusual drought. As a matter of fact, the 100 days going into that great fire, uh, they had only received about one inch of rain. We get an inch an hour around here or better. Uh, So 100 days without rain in that time in that particular place proved to be catastrophic. Chicago at the time was a city made of wood, as you would expect. Even sidewalks. And planks across the road provided uh, for traction across the muddy streets, what would normally be muddy. But at that time, in that century, it was ripe for a tragedy. 
That tragedy occurred on the heels of uh, a fire that had consumed four city blocks. The Chicago Fire Department at the time had 185 firefighters. They did not have adequate um, water uh, available to them. All of those kind of things just came together to provide for the situation that started at 9 o'clock in the evening when a fire watchman looked across the city and he saw on the west side smoke coming up. He sent the troops out and... um, What ended up there was a fire that consumed uh, 17,000 structures, left 100,000 people homeless, and took the lives of 300 individuals. Tradition says, and uh, we don't really know the truth here, but most of us would know that we've been taught that Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over a lantern and started that fire. The reality is we don't know how it started. But when 300 people die, and at the time in money of those days, $200 million in cost associated with that, how it started is almost inconsequential. I, I start there because the reality is anytime we come together as a group, We may not be dealing with these great fires like that one. Churches have to deal with fires, and some of them are great fires. I I know they're a great layout for us of the reality that we have that trials are there, but also in who God is. James picks up that theme for us as we come to uh, this passage. Let me just go ahead and read through what we're talking about. We'll come back and tear it apart and see what it has to say for us individually and corporately. Verse 7 of James chapter 5, James says, be patient therefore, brothers. Uh, Let me just stop and say the therefore points back upwards where we were last week about the poor Christians in the church who were suffering at the hands of the wealthy or the well-resourced people, whether in the church or outside, losing heart in that. James says, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophet's who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Here's where I want us to start today. I want you to think, In your life today, what are those trials or those fires that are either with you now or you anticipate them on the horizon? A great statement my brother gave me a number of years ago. We were talking about some trials that we were going through as a family and he made this comment to me and it is simply profound. We don't get to choose whether we have fires in our life or not. 
We only get to choose how we respond to them. I want you to know that I've known a string of people through the years who have not responded well to the fire. I would say it in terms of the series we've been preaching here that their faith did not work when the fires came. I'm thinking of a guy I was in school with. Now, you have to understand, I was the old man when I went to college or when I got serious about college. I had a wife and I had a son at home. God called me to go to school and so we did that at Wayland Baptist University in the Panhandle, uh, Plainview, Texas to be exact. And uh, I was the old guy among all those preacher boys. I was 25 years old, the old guy. Boy, old has a whole different connotation to me now. But I had a friend, matter of fact, he sat across the aisle from me in Greek class, cheated off, no, I'm, no, just, I was kidding about that, but uh, his name was Mark also. While we were in college, Mark got married, and not many months into that marriage, his wife decided that she really didn't want to be married to a preacher after all. And so, over a short period of time, she helped him to understand just how much she did not want to be married to a preacher. And shortly after our graduation, that marriage dissolved and was over. And so was Mark's ministry. As a matter of fact, so was Mark's willingness to follow God and to be committed to Christ at all. And he walked away from the church and he walked away from his calling. And as far as I know, he never came back. All of us, always are in a position with the potential of a trial that will burn your faith. And into that mix, James says these words. He just got through talking in the first six verses there about some of those people. He's talking to another group, but he's talking directly or in the undercurrents, if you will, of those first six verses are to those who are poor, who are in the church, who are suffering because those who are well-resourced are burning them. And it's in that context that James says in verse 7, be patient. And the basis of that patience is, according to verse 7, that there is that day coming when Christ returns, the day of the Lord, we call it through Scripture, and all the wrongs will be made right. And in the meantime, into that challenge and others, James says your faith has to work. It has to be fireproof. So he gives us three basic statements. And if you're here today, this is my, one of these messages where it is about, let me encourage you as much as I can in the midst of that trial. And it doesn't matter what that trial is, whether it's health-related, and we have those, whether it's financial uh, in its nature, and many of us have those. It could be in a relationship context. Fires don't... Our our fires are not picky and choosy about the way they come. They come full bore at us. James says first, one of the ways to fireproof your faith is to be patient. 
We find that several places through this, and I'm not going to take the time to read all of those at the moment, but I will take a little moment here to underscore what he's talking about. This is patience that has the end in mind. Don't give up today as hot as the fire is today. There is a better day coming. And that's good news for us. But it's hard news for us. If you're going through that fire, you recognize that there are those times that you just want to go, okay, God, where are you in this? And so James gives them a point of reference when he talks about the farmers and how those farmers have a perspective on life that is good for us in our trials. Now, I've had the opportunity, I guess everywhere I've been in ministry, every church that I've served, there have been some people there who are farmers. Now, the ones that I know that are farmers in this church are blueberry farmers. Now, many of you over the next couple of months are going to have the opportunity to go step into somebody's blueberry field and harvest for them. I know that because I watch Facebook and many of you already are asking, so when, is, when can we get blueberries? If that farmer is not aware that there is a harvest day down the road, they'll never do the hard work of tilling the soil and planting the seed, and making sure that it's clear of weeds, and watering it adequately, and trying to protect it from the freeze, and all of those things that come into the harvest come back onto the farmer in the day-in, day-out struggle. I've been around a lot of farmers, been around a lot of guys, blue-collar workers in the oil field, executives in multiple levels of business, and I still believe that I've never met anybody who works harder than a farmer. How how do you do that? I I don't get it. In the panhandle, we lived, I've told you before, in a house that was probably 20 feet from a a field that stretched for about a mile. A half a mile in, it had a turn row and a road there, but it, it was a field that one farmer worked it a mile long, and every day, When I got up to go to work or to go to class, that farmer was already out in his field working. When I came home, as the day was ending, that farmer was still out in his field working. It didn't matter what the weather was like. It was a point of reference that he had that said, I have to get this done today. Because if I don't do this today, there will be no harvest. James says, take a lesson from him. I think what his point to us is that when we find ourselves under the gun, in the fire of the trials of our lives, it's easy to give up. Keep the end in mind. There comes a day that God says, okay, I'm going to pull you out of that for a while, or I'm going to get you through it for a while, and it does end at some point. So he says, be patient. Now we get a messed up view of patience sometimes, I think. Because for many of us, patience is, okay, I'll wait. But the attitude that we carry into that is, I don't want to wait. And so we get our wheels turning. And how can I get out of this? And, and I'm, I'm, this is me, right? I start figuring, okay, so if I'm in this, what, how can I get out of this? And then I'll figure two or three contingency plans. And, and before I know it, I'm deep into the process. I've accomplished nothing except the passage of time. That's not what James is talking about here. 
This patience that he's talking about is a patience that says, well, I'll put it this way. I like the term. It is an aggressive pacifism. Now, that's almost a a contradiction of terms. So let me use an old story to help illustrate what I mean. Uh, Quakers, as a rule, I'm talking about the people that... um, section, if you will, of the church today. Uh, Quakers, by definition, are pacifists. Okay? The non-aggressive, we don't, we're not going to support war, you know, conscientious objectors, whatever we want to call that. Uh, and that's kind of, that's one of the pieces of what makes them up. And so there is the story, uh, whether it's true or not, I don't know, it's probably a preacher story, but I, I like it, makes a point. So uh, this Quaker had a horse, and the horse was a little bit obstinate. Now, I'm not a horse guy. I have been around them some. And I do know this, that when a horse bites you, it hurts. And so this Quaker had a horse that on one particular day was, uh, I guess, apt to be a little contentious. And so uh, he reached back, the horse did, and bit that Quaker. Now, remember, they're pacifists. And so uh, that's a dilemma. If, if that was me, I'd know exactly what I would do with that horse if he bit me. He wouldn't have teeth to bite with next time, probably. Um, but the pacifist basically said, now, you know, you shouldn't do that. You know, I take care of you. I look after you. So don't bite me. Uh, a little bit later, the horse reaches back and bites him again. And so this time he gets a little more perturbed. He has to calm himself down and he looks at the horse again and says, Hey, horse bites him. This time now the, the Quaker is beginning to, uh, sense a little bit of challenge to his beliefs. So when the horse reached that horse, his bridle, and he looked him in the eyes and he said, let me tell you something. I know that you know that I'm a Quaker and I can't hit you, but I can sell you to a Baptist. (laughs) So that's uh, aggressive passivism. It is in the midst of the fire having an active patience that carries you through. Now, that's tough for us because in America, we are rights. And so when we start going through trials, if our trial is brought to us on the horizontal level of life and it's an entity or a person uh, or that kind of a trial that comes at this, I demand my rights. In other words, I don't have to put up with that from you. And so we respond accordingly. That's not the kind of patience James is talking about here. Many of the times, though, the trials and the fires that we fight against are not on the horizontal level so much as I'm talking interpersonal. They just become those like health problems. And so we fight these things and we don't have anybody to go after unless we go after doctors because they should have known. But usually in this case, we tend to go after God. But we don't do it in such a way that, you know, because we, we, we have our sensibilities about us. So we want to accuse God necessarily, but it is in fact a, an accusation. God, why are you doing this? And what we mean by that is, why are you doing this to me? James says, instead of that, adopt that quiet resolve in the face of your trial that says, I will not let go 
of God. When we got this earlier in James, and just so you know, we're in the conclusion part of his letter. It's still going to take us a while to get to the end of it uh, because there's a lot there. But in this conclusion, James now is picking the themes that he started earlier in the book and he's starting to bring them back and remind us of what he has said. And so one of the things that I said as we first started looking at trials as the way James talks to us about them, uh, I said one of the great ways for us to address the trials of our lives is to ask this question, where's God in that? And James reminds us here that a fireproof faith, a faith that works in the fires of your life is a faith that holds on to God no matter how hot it gets. So if you're in a fire like that today, hold on. Remember, there's a day coming like the farmer working through the heat of the summer so that he has a corn crop when it's all said and done. Hold on. Now, that's not easy for us, right? Hello? It's not easy for me. Whether that's easy for you or not, I can't say, but I know this for me, that I can go through and have gone through some trials where it was so much easier just to throw up my hands and say, well, God doesn't care about me anymore. So James gives us a second element here, and that is the admonition for us to stand firm. You do realize, don't you, that there are trials out there that are of sufficient strength to knock your spiritual legs out from under you. When I went to New Mexico to serve that church, I inherited uh, 30 plus youth workers, which is a good thing. But there was a couple who worked with our teenagers that were um, a, a challenge. And so I began to inquire a little bit about what was going on. People kept kind of saying, well, you know, you, it's understandable. And so I, I, it wasn't understandable to me. So I started trying to research what was going on. And the story that I got was that this couple had, years before I got there, had twin boys. I think they were twins. They might not have been, but two kids, children, and um, decided that they would go out on a date one night, and so they hired the teenage boy who lived across the street to babysit them. They had done that many times. He was well-known to their family. All was safe. Until they came home from that date and discovered that that teenage boy, in horrific fashion, had murdered those two children. Now, let me tell you something. You don't know how you would respond in that situation. Unless you go through that, you just don't know. And it's easy for us to understand some things that grow out of that in a parent's uh, inner life. It helped me to understand some of what I saw in those two people. And here's, here's what I take from that. Uh, when God says be patient in the trials, uh, it's hard to do that in certain trials. That's one of those situations that so many different emotions and so many different levels of justice cry out to us. 
And while we fight those battles there, there was always that internal part of us that wants to just get it over with. Let's get through this. Our need for speed in our society today gets in the way of our patience spiritually. So James has this complimentary kind of an exhortation to the be patient part. He throws in stand firm. This is in verse eight. You also be patient. And here it is. Establish your hearts, strengthen them. It is a call here to hold your ground in the face of those fires that are consuming you. And whether yours is of the level of that couple that I was talking about a moment ago or yours is at the level of a doctor's report that comes back about you or a loved one or a bank account that is hopelessly behind. James says, stand firm. Okay, so how do you do that? How do you... When that storm rages against you, the video that we saw of those billowing waves, when you can't even see shore, to follow that analogy, how do you stand firm in that? The basis for that is in the last part of verse 8. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so James just keeps pushing this idea at us that even though it's hard now, we hold on to the reality that Christ will return and there is an end to all of this trouble that we're going through. Like that couple experience from the hands of that teenage boy in an evil fashion, any of us can be attacked by the prince of darkness. As a matter of fact, if I understand scripture correctly, all of us are being attacked by the prince of darkness. Don't think that he can't come at you with both barrels blazing. Stand firm. How do you stand firm? You keep your eye on the goal like the farmer. You keep your eye on the harvest. And James says, Christ will return. But here's one of those things in that same verse. It may be pointing to the end when Christ returns, but there is always that element in the trial that we know that Christ will carry us through that. And in the darkness today, Jesus holds on to you and carries you through. And there is daylight right around the corner. Now James turns to close this out, and he's been very pastoral for us. He's been very caring and encouraging. Hang in there. Be patient. And then he takes out his sword again, and he's been using a sword on us for a while. And he takes it out again in a way that almost seems like it doesn't fit. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers. This is one of those directives. It's one of those in-your-face kind of commands. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. That doesn't seem to fit. Verse 8 says, I'm going to skip verse 9 this time. Let me show you how it flows. Verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers. And and he goes right. It sounds like verse 9 is out of place. But it's not. James is a brilliant student of human nature. Let me come at it this way. You know those days that you wake up and you just don't feel exactly on top of it. Okay, so yesterday, 
We have this army of people who move us in, right? They did the work. I didn't have to do hardly anything. It was, it was a great day for me. I can watch people work all day long. I really didn't have to do a whole lot. And we did a lot to come into that day. Uh, but yesterday was not that day. And yet this morning, I woke up and every part of my body said, oh no, don't get up. You don't want to get up because it, the, I started moving and ligaments started screaming at me. Muscles that I long since forgot that I had reminded me that they're still there. You ever had those days where, you know, you overdo it at the gym Oh, you don't understand it. Some of you don't understand it. <laughs> How about those days where you wake up and before you even get out of bed, all that you have to do that day comes flushing over you and before the day even starts, you're halfway defeated. Whether you have those days very often, I can assure you, your boss has those days. And you know when your boss walks in the office that he's having one of those days, don't you? And you know when he's having one of those days, everybody's going to have one of those days before it's all said and done. So let me just push that to the end of the day. And you've had one of those days, maybe as an educator, uh, whether public school, home school, private school, doesn't matter. As an educator, your students that day needed a good dose of being shipped to Europe out of your care. By the end of the day, you're spent. And so you get in your car and you start going for home and then some of those people, you know the ones I'm talking about, the ones who somehow got driver's licenses but don't deserve a a driver's license and they surround you on the road as you're trying to make it home and then they start working on you. Do you know if you have dogs, I don't know about cats, um, but dogs have a way of recognizing your mood. And so when you walk in and you say to your dog, get out of the way, your dog's going to move probably. If he's not, by the time you kick him a couple of times, he will. Dogs are smart like that. You hurt them, they'll move. What happens with us when we get into these trials, these fires, and they begin to stack one on top of another? The patience part goes away. We keep the aggressive, but we get rid of the pacifism. And that standing firm, instead of being steadfast here, becomes march forward. And so we march forward aggressively in frustration or defeat. And what happens then is we tend to take that out on the people closest to us. And so we say things or we take attitudes that communicate, I had a bad day, leave me alone. And those bad days can stretch into bad weeks, can stretch into bad months, can stretch into bad years, can stretch into lifetime of just being a jerk. James says, in the midst of your fire, while you're 
being patient and steadfast. Stop grumbling. But he limits this into the church. Stop grumbling against one another, brothers. See what happens is when we start losing our grip in these fires, we become cannibals. and We eat each other up. There are churches who are known for this. Not for the patience or the steadfastness, but for the grumbling. You know, grumbling was bad enough. I'm talking about within the church. Grumbling was bad enough when it was just grumbling. But now, it's a phenomenon that we call social media grumbling. And so what happens is when your grumbling finds its way through your fingertips, onto your keyboard, onto Facebook, or Twitter, or Instagram, those are things then where grumbling now has a permanent home for all the world to see. And it kills the church. And it kills people. And so in the midst of this pastoral encouragement that James gives them as he begins to wrap up his letter, he also gives them that pastoral charge that says, stop doing that. Don't let your frustration in your fire kill somebody. And it can do that. Matter of fact, it does that all the time with people. You know, I have a, a close friend. Well, he used to be a close friend. Uh, he was probably, no offense to Brian, because I think Brian is incredibly mu- talented, gifted by God musician. Uh, Bobby, a friend of mine, ranks pretty close with Brian. Uh, by the time Bobby was not even 30, he had written, uh, a musical that was being used by churches. Uh, that was back in the day when that kind of stuff was pretty pro- popular. But he wrote it and got it published, and it was being used all over the place. Uh, Bobby was great with music, but he was horrible with people. And he lived in a cloud all the time. Things were not necessarily good for him with him. And he took a job at a church up in the northern part of East Texas. And they ate his lunch. And Bobby walked away from the church and he walked away from his friends who were in the church, some of us who were co-workers with him. And as far as I know, Bobby never came back. And he did so because of grumbling in a church. You know what happens when you put us under pressure? We leak. You know what we leak? Whatever's in us. So you can take a sponge and you can squeeze it and what comes out of the sponge? Whatever's in it. And you could try to, you know, kill my illustration and say, well, what if there's nothing in it? Uh, You mean no liquid, I'm guessing. You squeeze a sponge Uh, and there's no liquid in it, you're going to get air out of it. You're going to get whatever's in it. And it's the same for you. Whatever's in you when the pressure is on is what's going to come out. And James knows that. 
And he also knows that that church and every church since then suffers from people who are under pressure, who feel it necessary to grumble about life. And so James says, just don't. And he uses an example for us, and I'm I'm done here, musicians, y'all come on up. But he uses an example for us here from the prophets, and he particularly mentions Job. Now, I got to tell you, Job had a great agent because Job gets a lot of play for the patience of Job. You go read the book of Job, and there's places in there that Job didn't have any patience at all. Uh, But at the end, we get it, and here's what we get from Job at the end. Job had a point there, go read chapter 29 and 30 thereabouts, where Job just kind of lays it out. And he starts talking about how life was before he started suffering. And it's an accusation kind of a thing. And God lets him do that. Remember, when you're under pressure, what's inside is what comes out. God lets him do that. But then the tables turn because when God says, okay, that's enough of that, God says, okay, I've listened to you. Now you listen to me. And God starts taking it to Job. Who do you think you are grumbling about this? At the end, I I guess if I had to choose like one favorite verse in all the scripture, maybe this is it. Job 42, 8, I think it is. It says this. That Job, after all of that, and after God responded to him, Job said, before all of this, my eyes had seen you, talking about, uh, my ears had heard of you, talking about God. But now my eyes have seen you. There's all the difference in the world in your trials when knowing about God and knowing God. What I want you to get from this whole message today is, if you're going through a trial today, God knows about that. If you think God's abandoned you, you're wrong. God loves you more than anybody in this world can love you, including your parents, your kids, your mate. God loves you beyond what you can even understand. He didn't bring you this far to abandon you now. God loves you. So in that trial, find him and hold on to him. And let him hold on to you. It's amazing the perspective God can give you when that happens in your life. Let's pray together. And as we pray, I just want to pray for you who are going through those trials today. Father, we pray that you would show yourself in a very real way. We pray that in the darkest of the dark days and nights, in the hottest of the fires, that we face that you would prove yourself to be there alive powerful and victorious and then help us each to hold on to that in Jesus name